from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome to Work and Life. So glad you're here. This is our weekly conversation in which we explore everything from uh, your life as it relates to work and your work as it relates to life, your family, your community, our society, our, our broken world, so much in need of healing, and your private self, who you are as a distinct individual or as a member of a group because of who you are as an individual, your mind, your body, your spirit. I am your host, Stu Friedman. I'm the founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and of the Wharton Leadership Program. I run a management consulting and training company called Total Leadership, and you can find out all about our services that help people and organizations create greater harmony and improve performance in all parts of life at totalleadership.org. There's free book chapters, articles, videos, assessment tools, lots of stuff. So check it out, totalleadership.org. New episodes of this show premiere Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern, right here on SiriusXM channel 132. And you can follow us on Twitter at SXM Business, as well as me, at Stu Friedman. Well, for the past couple months, my guests and I have been focusing on the discussion uh, that is now at the forefront in our country. It's now mid-August 2020, about systemic racism and what we can do to change things, to make things better. Perhaps the first step is talking about it and learning how to talk about questions of race and racial injustice, but this is a lot easier said than actually done. My guest today has said, you're always communicating about race, whether you talk about it or not. He's a nationally recognized clinical psychologist and researcher on negotiating racial conflicts, using racial literacy for school children, community mental health centers, teachers, police, and parents. It's an honor to introduce Dr. Howard Stevenson, who is the Constant Clayton Professor of Urban Education, Professor of Africana Studies in the Human Development and Quantitative Methods Division of the Graduate School of Education at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Stevenson, welcome to Work and Life. Hello, so good to see you and be with you, Stu. <laughs> it's great to have you here. And listeners, uh, we are we are looking at each other, uh, Dr. Stevenson and I, on uh, on our Zoom calls <laughs> we're recording here. You, of course, are only hearing us. But yes. it's, uh, it's good that we can see each other and uh, be able to connect in that way. Uh, let me just say a little bit more about you before we begin our conversation so our listeners know who, who I'm speaking with, Dr. Stevenson is Executive Director of the Racial Empowerment Collaborative, that's REC, here at Penn, which is a research program development and training center that brings together community leaders, researchers, authority figures, families, and youth to study and promote racial literacy and health in schools and neighborhoods. It's an amazing program, and you're going to hear all about it in our conversation. He's also the Director of Forward Promise a national program office funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, which provides philanthropic support for organizations designed to improve the health of boys and young men of color and their families, and to help them heal from the trauma of historical and present day dehumanization, discrimination, and colonization. Since 1985, Dr. Stevenson has served as a clinical and consulting psychologist working in impoverished rural and urban neighborhoods across the country. Dr. Howard Stevenson, again, thanks so much for being here today. Um, let, let's get into what I mentioned at the, at the top, and that is mm -hmm. this notion that no matter what we say, no matter what we believe we may be conveying, including what I just said by way of overview and introduction, and indeed in this very question that I'm asking you right now, uh, we're always communicating about race. Can, can you give us just the, the big ideas that help to explain the subtle and perhaps not so subtle and maybe unintended and perhaps unconscious ways in which people communicate about race? Sure, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I'm a clinical style psychologist, clinical psychologist by training, and then primarily working with families and families of color. And so for about 30 years, I've been studying a question um, about does it matter when parents talk to their kids about race? So that area of research 
that we've learned about for 30 years is called racial socialization. And in a nutshell, um, one argument is why do black and brown families tend to think they need to talk to their children about race is because of racial hostility in the world. And in many respects, um, they use the conversation, whether it's direct or indirect, uh, or children pick up messages from family often uh, when something racial happens and make judgments about it. And they sometimes internalize it as a strategy of coping. And so we think of people- Can you give an example of that? So um, a common example I've used for, for myself and my family growing up in Southern Delaware, which, uh, which most people don't know, there are like two Delawares in the world. There's a Northern Delaware and a Southern Delaware and people in Northern Delaware look down on people in Lower Delaware as- I didn't lower. know that. Yes, yeah, that's a kind of cultural slur. Regardless of whether you were born wealthy or black or brown or low resource, um, or whatever your religion, if you grew up in Southern Delaware, people in Northern Delaware will call those folks slower, lower. And you can go, I could go anywhere around the country, and if anybody knows Delaware, even if they're not from Southern Delaware, they will know that language as a cultural slur. Mm -hmm. Okay, so got it. It, me it means a lot because Southern Delaware is more rural, very country, very uh -huh. farmland, very, and there's a language structure that's different than those mm -hmm. in, in Northern Delaware. But um, for many of us uh, of color going into supermarkets, it could become a racial battleground mm. uh, because of the way that um, we are treated in public spaces. And my mother happened to be from North Philly. She didn't come from Southern Delaware. She was very much struck by the way in which black and brown people were deferential in the presence of white folks in that Southern-like, Alabama-like context. And so she wouldn't have it. She's from North Philly. She has an attitude. She has style. So we followed behind her in the store, and yeah. we had to carry that same attitude. But before we the would Philly go attitude, in, not not the Philly attitude. Okay, so yes, you were, the Philly attitude. You stood tall. You didn't you didn't slouch or avoid eye contact. That sort of thing. Right. There's we just followed her lead, and her lead was not to be deferential. Right. And she would give us the talk before we go in. Don't touch mm -hmm. nothing. Don't ask for nothing. I don't care how many kids are climbing the walls. They're not my children. Because she said she wanted us to be prepared for how white people would misperceive us in these mm -hmm. spaces. And then there could be trouble. But she also would not allow, she did not understand black and brown people who were not combative when they were disrespected. And so... One one form of socialization as a child is watching how your parent navigates racial disrespect. And uh, another form is her telling you exactly why she did not <laughs> di uh, tolerate dis uh, racial disrespect. And as children, you know, we're hopeful as parents, we hope our kids get half of what we say. It might even be less than that. But the point is way half less. of our oh. communication, maybe way less, <laughs> Um, but we probably know a lot more now that kids pick up a lot more on what we don't say yeah. and how we non-verbally behave. And that is a form of teaching or socialization. And so I would argue that everybody um, responds and notices what their parents say and don't say about race every day. Because of what they see in how we act, uh, despite what we might preach to them about how we want them to act. Yes, and that's common for all humans, you could argue. When we grew up, we said, I will never grow up and do what my parents did. I will live a different life. I will marry a different person, and lo and behold, and I will say different things, and lo and behold, as soon as children show up, we are sounding like our parents. Like that Geico commercial, I think it's either Geico or Progressive, which is fantastic, you know, where they basically say you're starting to become your father or you're becoming your parents, and then you start wearing like their clothes and stuff. I think it's hilarious. But the point yes. is, <laughs> you're, the, the notion behind that is that you are, you are socialized inadvertent, you think, mm. in ways that you become later on. And those did not, they weren't always direct communications or how to wear my father's looking like clothes and stuff. So, um, well, so, so racially, we think that happens to everybody. Well, to, to people of color, as well as to white people. Yes. Yep. Everybody. So, so can you speak to the, to, to the perspective that, that you've gained about what it is that, 
we learn that that white kids learn from their parents sure uh, about race so there is some research on this but in our and in, in for example um and i've talked about this in my work but also in giving talks in a ted talk about what I learned from my father's mm -hmm. way of dealing with racial conflict. It's an amazing was, TED talk, by the way. I, I will we'll put it in the show notes and uh, because sure. it's it's a must say. I think over two million people have seen it. It's really wonderful, especially the piece with you and, and Julie and your son. Uh, but please continue. Mm -hmm. Sure, yeah. sure. Well, well, my mother's my father's way was to be more nonviolent, more prayerful and spiritual. My mother's way was to be more combative and deal with people immediately. My father could wait. She would say, take care of it right now. Mm -hmm. And so we learned different strategies, my brother and sister and I, about how to do a combination of folks. So we can we can deal directly in the moment or we could simply, you know, pray for people who we feel are disrespectful. And those are strategies, coping strategies that you could use on a regular basis. And so in white families, some of the research suggests that uh, white parents are more excited when their parent when their children tell them they don't talk about race because that in some respects in parents' minds might appear as if they know that talking about race is stressful, talking about race could be dangerous, and talking about race could hurt other people, including mm. their friends. Mm. So from the same protective mindset, white parents will often uh, be in the opposite direction, not always, but uh, that, that somehow talking about race is, not a, is a scary thing and could hurt other people. And that is a protective sort of frame so it should be avoided. Um, should be avoided. It's a good thing to avoid it. Yes. Which is the opposite of the conversation that you had with your mother before you went to the supermarket. And not, it, yeah, and not in all cases, obviously, is it directly opposite. But the idea is, do you have a coping strategy when you confront a racial moment? Mm. And that's what I've taken from it. And that's what that research is about. And can you increase uh, engagement and decrease avoidance over time? And what it means is how do you manage the stress of a racial encounter, uh, which I would argue we're all stressed by. But uh, I think I think it was Baldwin who says the the, the cat the mouse always knows more about the cat than the cat knows about the mouse. <laughs> you, could, you could argue that uh, if you have privilege around race in our society, you get the privilege of never noticing that you are raced. Right. And so, you're, you know, avoidance means something very different um, in that sort of frame of power than if you cannot, every day you're confronted by your, your difference. Yes, it's invisible to those who aren't affected by the, the color of their skin. And, yes. And, and what seems to be happening, and I want to get back to this when we conclude, is is a reckoning or a greater awareness today certainly more than in my history mm -hmm. uh of of that 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 the privilege that that white people have in their being in the majority so everyday racism um is is what you refer to the you know microaggressions which we've been talking a lot about on the show lately um what how how do you teach people, par parents especially, to teach their kids. You, you've done a lot of thinking and a lot of writing and speaking about mm -hmm. racial literacy. What, what's the essence of what it is that you teach? So in some of that research around racial socialization over those years, we, thought, we found out that the more parents said they talked to their kids about race and the more kids said that their parents talked to them about race, even though they didn't always correspond, those outcomes for the kids were very were more positive than negative or neutral. That is, they, they tend to do better in school academically. They tend to also have a higher self-esteem around issues of difference. They had, um, in our work, around anger management and depression management, there were some positive outcomes for teenagers of color. But we didn't know exactly how and why. And it wasn't mm -hmm. just how often you talk about it. Because sometimes parents will talk in proverbs. They won't be very clear. They'll, be, they'll talk about race, but you've got to figure it out. What we know now, uh, which is what I'm calling racial literacy, if racial socialization is informing kids and preparing kids indirectly about dealing with race, literacy is about being much more explicit. It's about confrontations, about um, let's just, let's move away all the obfuscation. Let's just talk about, here's what you, daddy wants you to do when somebody comes up and says this, and here's how you can feel about yourself. 
here's how I'd like for you to see that this is not about you, it's about the other. So literacy we define as the ability to read, recast, and resolve a racially stressful moment. And um, racially stressful moments can come out of anywhere. It can come from family, it can come from neighbors, it can come from school teachers, my best friends I've known from years, uh, my best white friends, my whatever, my sports, my on athletic teams, it can show up. And if it is stressful, how do you navigate it? One, do you see it, like read it correctly? Mm -hmm. Two, recast it. Can you actually notice that you're stressed about it, but bring it down to a, a workable level and then resolve it? Can you walk away feeling like you made a good decision? Let me remind listeners, uh, this is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. So glad you're with us today. I'm speaking with Dr. Howard Stevenson, who is a clinical psychologist and researcher on negotiating racial conflicts here on the faculty of the Graduate School of Education at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, so take us through that uh, again, because it, perhaps with an example of how you help people learn how to read, recast, and resolve, which seems like yeah. a, a smart and simple way to approach uh, how to make people more literate, give them the language, the tools to be able to understand what's going on and deal with racial issues, conflict, in a way that results in positive outcomes. Thank you. Um, so in some respects, because we're stressed by racial moments sometimes, we literally, and if we have privilege, you could argue, we may not see a racial elephant show up in the room. There's sometimes races happening around us. You know, some people get it. Some people don't get it at all. They want to know, what's, what do you mean about race? Mm -hmm. And so reading is kind of considered fundamental to a racial encounter. That is how well do you pick up if something racial just actually happened? Because mm -hmm. if you don't pick up, you're not going to be great at making a good, healthy racial decision if you don't see race. <clears throat> but if you are stressed, let's say on a scale of one to 10, when you actually see it, um, how do you bring your eight, nine and 10, which is like a threat level condition down mm -hmm. to a five, six or seven, to be able to make a healthy decision. Five, six, or seven is like facing a, a poisonous snake or a tsunami, right? You're lousy. You only got, you either call on your creator when that happens or you give up and just, you know, remember, you know, wonder what the afterlife is about. That's what eight, nine, and 10 really means. Fight or flight. Fight or flight and, and fright. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but no, fight or flight and fright. So, so mm -hmm. the three of those options, uh, but there usually is it going to be you or me kind of questioning. Five, six, or seven is like climbing a mountain, challenging but not impossible and not immediate threat. So recasting is can I get my eight, nine, and ten down to a five, six, or seven or even lower? So reading is do I see it? Recasting is can I manage my emotions and stress? And resolving is do I walk away from the moment feeling like I made a socially just decision that matches my values? Hmm. Did I? Did I underreact, pretend it didn't really bother me when it did? Or did I overreact and curse everybody out, including the cat, the dog, and they had nothing to do with it, in a sense, right? There's a way in which we don't- Depends on the cat, don't you think? Never mind. Sometimes the cats are really responsible, but people <laughs> underestimate, but not all the time. That's which is the point, yes. Um, well, but yeah. what you just said about, you know, what's this, you know, did I act in a way that's consistent with my values? That's something we talk a lot about on this show, as you can imagine, is, you know, sure. understanding what your values are, your vision of the kind of world you're trying to create. That's essential to what it means to lead from the point of view of your whole life. Yeah. So is, is values clarification or, you know, uh, tools for, you know, grasping, well, how do I want to be seen in terms of my purpose, what I represent in the world. Um, is that a part of, of the work that you do in racial literacy? Oh, absolutely. And especially leaders, whether it's business or mm -hmm. education or justice and health areas, there, there's a quality at which uh, you can't mobilize a unit of people who follow you if they think your values are off the charts. They, there's an incongruence. Right. And the funny thing about values is not what you say is, is people can see it. It's, it's absolutely observable. And the same way children can watch their parents talk about noble things and do very ignoble things, ignoble things. Mm -hmm. We are watching that of our leaders as well. Right. And the question is, do I actually point out to you that you really are not telling the truth about what you just did? Or do I 
do I ignore it and pretend I didn't see it? That's one mm. of the challenges of folks watching leaders and their values confusion is, wait a minute, this don't seem to go together. And, um, you know, I think we are a society that can live with that obfuscation and confusion for way too long, especially around race. Uh, to this very moment. Um, to this very moment, you know, yeah. There was a student in my MBA class um, about four or five years ago, African-American student who uh, in a day of protest wore um, tape over his mouth all day, uh, along with some of his you know, brothers and sisters. And, and they, and, and it was, and I'll never forget that. Uh, this mm -hmm. is about six or seven years ago. And I contacted him recently to say, hey, um, what are you doing these days? He, he's at one of the big consulting firms. Would you, I'd, I'd love to know what life is like for you this, these days. You, you know, you sent a really powerful message to me and to our class that day. Um, what's happening now? And he said, well, let me check with my PR office and the communications directors. And he came back and said, well, they won't let me. And I thought, mm. really? Yeah. Wow. Only partners can speak, you know, right. about race. I'm like, that is just so wrong yeah. uh, from my perspective. How do you make sense of that, Dr. Stevenson, in the current political and cultural environment? Does that surprise you? No, no. Um, it's disturbing, but it's yeah. not surprising, I think. That, that, is, that is an example of not freedom, I would argue. That you could say that um, that's an example of power in a particular way or freedom. It's, you know, what level of freedom, like what kind of American Express card do I have? Do I have the blue, gold, black? I'm not sure. But they all get me something a little bit more of. <laughs> and so I think there's only so much freedom people have in, the, in our culture in a way when it comes to your own voice, I guess, with your own voice. So reading, yeah. recasting, resolving. Uh, I want to dig further into this uh, because it's just it's such a helpful way to think about what we all need to be able to do to just take a breath and try to understand what's going on, what's really going on so that we can uh, act in a way that helps us to create greater understanding and, and reduce the likelihood of, of violence of all kinds, emotional, physical. Um, so what are, the, what are the essential elements of teaching people to read? Yeah. Um, there's a there's a very basic question that we ask folks when we do training or institutes, and that is simply, what do you notice about yourself during a racially stressful moment, or during any racial moment? Maybe it's not stressful. It's you know, what do you notice? And and part of that is an entry into others to be curious more so when it comes to race, because we're if we're afraid to talk about these issues in our society, and everybody is or you've spent years in school where they teach you how to be sophisticatedly avoidant. You have skill sets of how to avoid race now instead of just, uh, I'm fearful. I know I'm, I'm sophisticated in how I avoid. Noticing challenges that. If I notice what's happening to me, and that could be my thoughts, my body, my emotions. If I just take notes, I'm counter socializing. I'm actually cutting across the grain of how we avoid um, racial moments. Can you say and, more about what you mean by counter so socializing? In other words, breaking what you have learned through all the millions of episodes in your life history that have conditioned you to ignore or suppress or to somehow put out of consciousness your awareness of what's happening? Yes, and to do so both consciously and unconsciously. Yes, what you just described. and. Uh, if you can imagine, for example, if I, I say to people, like, can you tell me um, messages around race or interactions you remember around race while you were growing up, mm. right? And we just spent a little time. And I can do this in an audience of a lot of people or very few people. And I'll give you, like, um, two minutes to come up with a story. Mm -hmm. And then I'll ask you, what do you notice about yourself? And then I'm interested in what people whatever they notice, it doesn't really matter. And in and, and my experience, um, and I've done this for newscasters as well as reporters, um, a lot of times people are surprised by how many different feelings they actually have 
in that short period of time about remembering. Like even now, if you if I ask, I'm you doing that, it. It's <laughs> happening to me right now. It's as I'm recalling just one of the many episodes growing up in Brooklyn, New York, in a lower middle class neighborhood. Uh, shame, fear, guilt. Those are the ones that come right to mind. Right. And how old are you when you're seeing this? Like right ten. now, you're ten. Can you can you talk about um, you know what happened and who's in 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 what you're seeing? Yeah, I'm in a classroom and we're learning about reconstruction uh, in fifth grade. We, we weren't learning a lot about that topic at that time, as you can imagine. But this was a this was a class for for the smart kids, uh, mm -hmm. which, you know, we used to separate out back in the, the Brooklyn public school system. And we're learning about the Freedmen's Bureau. Right. And of course, my name is Friedman. Mm. Right? So, you know, there were a couple of, you know, mean-spirited and ignorant classmates who started to make fun of me mm -hmm. because I was freedman, mm -hmm. making fun of me as if I were black. Mm -hmm. You know, I was, I was being associated with, and I, I was a small child, very fast, right. very fast runner, but very small. And, right. and so I was fearful. I was ashamed. I, I, did, I, did, I wanted to hurt them. Uh, I felt like there was something wrong with me. Anyway, those are that's that's the episode. That's a great example. Yeah. Well, and and the thing is, you are already. Some people take a long time to get to feelings. You went there immediately, like you noticed that. And if and and I would say, you know, in our model, it was a mindfulness model that is called CLCBE. What we're saying and noticing is, um, can you notice your feelings, which you did very well, and then on a scale, the first one is calculate. Mm -hmm. Calculate on a scale of one to ten those different feelings you had, where tens being in high intensity, one being low intensity. You said shame. You said three others. Two, two Guilt three and others. fear, and I want to get back to those, but I'm I, I know that we are at the point where we have break. to break. So uh, we're going to dig further into this when we come right back. Please stay sure. with us. This is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132, and I'm your host Stu Friedman. My guest today is Dr. Howard Stevenson, and we're going to be uh, continuing our conversation about racial literacy, how you can improve yours and help the people around you, your kids, your coworkers, your friends, uh, when we come back. Again, this is Stu Friedman. It's Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. Stay with us. We will be right back. You're listening to Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome back to Work and Life. So glad you're here. I am your host, Stu Friedman, and my guest today is Dr. Howard Stevenson, who is the Constance Clayton Professor of Urban Education, Professor of Africana Studies in the Human Development and Quantitative Methods Division of the Graduate School of Education at the University of Pennsylvania. He's a nationally recognized clinical psychologist and researcher on negotiating racial conflicts using racial literacy, and that's what we're talking about. Read, recast, and resolve. And we were working with an example from my personal history. Um, let's pick it up from there, Dr. Stevenson. Sure. Uh, how, how do we use that example as a, as a way to help listeners understand what they can do to learn how to read better? Yeah, so if you think about our history of, of racial dialogue as well as uh, struggle, is this a blindness concretizes a lot of it, not seeing the obvious or not seeing what's going on with yourself. And so noticing is part of the strategy to say, what, what did you notice when you were, you know, 10 years old? And feelings in this calculate, locate, communicate, breathe, and exhale framework, CLCBE. Calculate is what feelings am I having right now? And then on a calculate on a scale of one to 10, how intense are they? And you started to do that with shame, fear, and guilt. And in the way that we think about it, you can have any feeling. You could actually have uh, disappointment and excitement. Those are, you can have alternative feelings. It's just whatever you feel when you remember that event. And um, they can also be in levels, different intensity levels. Like I was high on disappointment and low on sadness, but high on excitement. <clears throat> mm -hmm. You know, whatever, you match to yourself is important to notice if you notice it. So that's calculate. Locate would be where in your body do you feel it? So if you have three feelings, shame, guilt, uh, uh, fear, where on your body and be as specific as possible, where would you locate those different feelings? And for some people it's one spot, 
other people, it's actually three different spots, right? And um, the the more I know that about my body, I'm noticing, I'm noticing, and that noticing increases or decreases my blindness. So, so, go for it. You must. Um, I'm. Is meditation a part of this practice? Because this is very much consistent with what one does in mindfulness training, right? Is simply to be noticing uh your your inner experience to be able to ground yourself in what is in the reality of what is happening no medication no no but also it is it is unique in that way similar around focusing on the present Mm -hmm. i would just argue and i've had a couple of mindfulness colleagues who think of it more of a more broadly i don't think so i think how you might be mindful about your own struggle emotional struggle in general or in life is different than a racial struggle that is i think Mm -hmm. we have peculiar ways that we run from race and that um just because i'm learning to find out something else about myself say childhood doesn't mean i'm going to automatically pick out and not navigate the racial tensions because Mm -hmm. the way that we've been socialized are our racial tensions are different than the way we've been socialized other life tensions and so um but okay. you're right focusing on the present what do you notice about yourself during this particular racial experience so your feelings naming them assessing the extent to which you are you know they are alive in you yes respecting your mind and the other parts of your body locating where it is that you're feeling it then what communicate and that would be more what self-talk and what self memories come to mind in that moment that I'm telling the story of it or, uh, uh, yes, in that moment. So, um, do I say anything to myself while I saw myself as that 10, did you say anything to yourself while you saw yourself as that 10 year old in that classroom talking about reconstruction, uh, when you were now recalling it? And then did I see any memories? So when I asked you about memories, for example, did you see yourself in the classroom when this event happened? Yep. Yeah. What do you see? What did you notice in the classroom or the oh, people? Man. Or this is this is 58 years ago. <laughs> Long time yeah. ago. Uh, but I remember um, sort of cowering. Uh, you know, I was afraid, and I was also I was enraged. You know, I wanted just like you fuckers. Like, why are you talking to me that way? Yeah. Uh, and, and, and yet, you know, oh my God, you know, why are they calling me the, I was confused. So I remember sitting there. I remember, I don't remember the faces of the people speaking to me, but I remember, uh, you know, not sitting up tall and straight and, and looking back, you know, with, with, with confidence and, uh, you know, commitment to, 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 to trying to, you know, defend myself, but rather to sort of recoil from it. I'm probably right. revealing too much to my listeners about my life history, so <laughs> I don't know. I hope this is instructive for you all. <laughs> Howard, right. please help. Yes. No, no, no. I, I love the detail because sometimes it's hard for us to get people to be detailed, uh-huh. especially in the first time. But um, to me, that's beautiful. And I, I have to have a caveat whenever I say this to people. I, I think that's fantastic. I'm not saying I think it's beautiful or fantastic that you were in pain. Oh, of course not. I'm saying beautiful and fantastic that you're noticing that you were in pain and that's mm-hmm. very different and that's mm-hmm. noticing is going to counter our natural inclination to fight flight and fright and i think to, to challenge those extreme threat responses this is an important curiosity to prevent making really unhealthy decisions if you mm-hmm. feel like you're at a threat you're going to make a decision that is life-threatening uh, to someone else or to yourself and we could define life very different ways. But um, as painful as it might be to go through it, it's healing in the longer run, we feel, because um, you notice what you your feelings were. You notice where, where in your body did you feel it? That's the only thing we didn't go through. Did you feel those feelings, any particular part of your body? You talked about cowering. My gut. Your gut, yes. So you got your gut. You got um, feelings and intensity. You also got thoughts and memories, maybe not self-talk, maybe you didn't say to yourself, but you did say something that we think of is also instructive around comeback lines. And mm-hmm. so so we, we teach kids how to, to give racially healthy comeback lines. And we're talking as young as fifth grade uh-huh. up, up to adulthood right. that um, 
did I want to say something or do something in that moment? If I had a do-over, what would I have said or done to stand up for myself, to protect another person I witnessed? Maybe it didn't happen to me. I saw it to a friend. Mm-hmm. And I think in this case, we actually give people the freedom to come up with a superhero. You can grow wings if you want. You can have a friend grow wings. You could, you could develop fire through your nostrils. It doesn't really matter. Just create a space where if you had a do-over, you would do something or say something that would allow you to protect yourself and affirm yourself uh, if you had that chance. What would that be? You mean, my better angels or, or my, base, my base impulse? Great question. So the comeback line part is important because when you said muttered under your breath, you were saying something that I assumed would have been a way for you to have protected yourself there, even even if it was small. But um, when we think of healthy comeback lines, we think of both healthy and unhealthy. Okay. And I, and I don't define them mm-hmm. because I'm really around a lot of people in spaces that are always trying to be so nice. Even if I said to them, an unhealthy comeback is this, they won't ever get there. So I'm hoping unhealthy would be whatever comes to mind that allows you to get to your angels and to your not so much angels mm-hmm. as honestly as possible. So if you said I was I was angry at a 10, but your response came out like a, your do-over was a two, I would say you're selling Stu short. Mm-hmm. You're selling Stu's emotional well-being short. You're, you're selling Stu's physiological well-being short, and you're selling Stu's mental wellness short because of your your response should match the level of rejection in that moment. That's the idea. So you know, as as you're saying, go sorry, for it. Please finish your thought, and then I, I want to no, elaborate it. on what the teacher might have done or what the learning environment was like because yes. uh, I, there was no conversation with the teacher about this. Uh, and yet, you know, you could well imagine. Now I'm thinking, well, what would have been a healthy way to sort of recast and resolve that would have been good for all of us? Sure. Because part of what I was so angry at was the injustice of what this person, you know, I think it was two people, but I'm mainly imagining, re- you know, reimagining uh, one person in particular. If we would have been able to talk about like, what was the source or motivation of his, um, you know, uh, making this claim, you know, or, you know, associating me with being uh, a former slave, a former enslaved person, rather, uh, you know, why would he do that? Um, What, or, and, and, and how, you know, like, for, for me to be more actively curious about his mindset and what was giving rise to his saying what he said, yeah, uh, would have been so much more useful uh, as it was for me when I lived in Ann Arbor, you know, many years later as a graduate student in 1981, my wife and I are PhD students were poor, you know, we're living in a small, um, you know, as graduate students, we, we had no money, uh, but we, we scraped together enough to, to get a, uh, like a 900 square foot little A-frame in a working class neighborhood. And, you know, we're up and coming, we're in our late 20s, early 30s, and we painting our house and one of our neighbors who's down and out, it's early eighties, Michigan. He's, he's delivering newspapers in the middle of the night and he's got three young girls and it's tough for him. And, you know, we just painted the house and he rides by and says, Hey, your house looks great. You ought to paint a swastika on it. Mm. And now, you know, now I'm, now I'm 30 years old yeah. and I'm thinking, okay, I don't think Rick really understands what he just said to me. So I'm going to try to help him understand. Right what that means. And we ended up having a very useful conversation for him as well as for me. Sure. Um, so I, I, I apologize again for perhaps going too far into my history here, but it seems to me a good contrast to what happened to me 20 years prior. Sure. Yeah. And, <clears throat> but that's part of the literacy we think of. We want everybody yes. to go back into their history, frankly. And, frank, and, and in a sense, including even as a child is a beginning because I could begin to both identify moments which I want to do overs, but I can also eventually, the more you talk about it and practice it, you could begin to forgive yourself in those moments as well. Mm-hmm. And then this is not unlike when we're thinking about uh, traumas that happen. Uh, you say 58 years, I've been in crowds of folks in their eighties who literally will remember something from five and six years old. 
Course. And it has never left them. And they mm. will see the images of the people. They will mm. not forget those images. They're just as stark. Um, but that in our world is a kind of trauma. And it and that trauma, for some people, it undermines their voice. It undermines their health. You know, we don't we don't we don't study racism because we think it's a morally wrong thing to do. That's important. And for value's sake, yes. But the real issue is what if it affects how you learn? You know, what if it affects your your health care. What if it affects, affects, you know, we know there are more links to these issues around breast cancer in black women, right? And when you control for a host of factors, we know it affects sleeplessness in teenagers of color uh, and white teenagers, but it stays with teenagers of color into young adulthood where it doesn't, you know, uh, for, for, white teenage, for white teenagers who become mm -hmm. adults 20 years later. So racism isn't just around right or wrong. It's also about how healthy you want to live and how long you want to live on the planet. That's a very different calculus as to why I'm expecting people to notice, to go back in that history, to come to a reckoning of it emotionally, psychologically, and physically. And then I think like you did, you, you then I'm ready to engage and have a conversation that's humane around this and treat other people human, humanely in ways that I myself may not, might not have been. Let me remind listeners, this is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I'm speaking with Dr. Howard Stevenson, a clinical psychologist and researcher on negotiating racial conflicts. He's a fellow faculty member here at the University of Pennsylvania at the Graduate School of Education. Tell us, uh, Dr. Stevenson, about the Racial Empowerment Collaborative here at Penn. So this is a center uh, that I started about six years ago, um, and uh, part of the goal is to be a, a, a um, program development center, a research center, and a training center. And in many respects, we have developed different interventions around the notion of racial literacy. So uh, we knew that racial socialization was positive for young people we, and, and for adults. We also know that doing racial literacy allowed us to be more specific of how to include those strategies in teacher education, for example, can teachers like the teacher you describe? How does a teacher start up a conversation when she sees this conflict happening in the class? Yeah, I wish or, she did. Or he or he or they. Uh -huh. and in that sense, uh, could that change the climate not only in that experience in the classroom, but the other, the entire year in the class? So, if I'm a student of color in that classroom, how do I fit compared to how Stu didn't fit? Mm -hmm. Right. <clears throat> in that sense. Um, wow, I want my educator to be skilled at not at noticing themselves during that moment and not fight, flight, or fright. Mm -hmm. If your teacher goes fight, flight, and fright, what kind of education are you getting, right? So our training stuff is around educators. If your police officer in your neighborhood is fight, flight, and fright and turns every teenage boy of color into a, a potential uh, terrorist, that's not going to be healthy for either side. But, but people of color... Um, benefit the least, and they are harmed the most in those in those moments. Yes. So our center is attempting to both train leaders and educators and in justice, health, and education how to negotiate these racial encounters and not lead to unhealthy, unjust decision making, which I think are based on high level threat reaction, racial threat moments where nobody has the capacity to bring my eight, nine, and 10 down to five, six, or seven. And I'm not including those who are racist and, and hostile and intend to violence. Um, it's a very different set of folks instead of uh, processing. But um, I'm, everybody is struggling over how to have a racial conversation. It's like walking across the LA freeway, frankly, blindfolded. And, uh, but that's because they don't have the skills in negotiating their own curiosity, what they're noticing uh, in the process. And your, your center. Um, Sorry, I forgot that part. <laughs> yeah. Well, what have you found about, uh, about the impact of the kind of training that you do in terms of being able to mm -hmm. create change? Well, and I think maybe a little bit of what you were experiencing is a sense of, man, I wish other folks could see me going through this who are my leaders. I wish that 
And what I've found is educators feel the same way. They're tired of being stuck with deer in the headlights in their own classrooms. I'm mm -hmm. so agentic in so many parts of my life. And as soon as this issue comes up, I turn into a zombie, right? And, oh, wow. and so the experience of not being a zombie or not being a sort of um, vulnerable to being called out as a racist for those teachers of, who are white, but also for teachers of color, let's say, or, or educators of color or students of color, they want to be able to stand up for themselves, right? And they don't want to wait 10 years to get it. They want, they don't, and, and if they waited for the school or the institution to get it, they'll never get a chance to stand up for themselves. And so what if you could in that moment say, I reject your rejection of me. I think that's the work we've been doing. We've been helping young people and adults realize this moment of this microaggression or this macroaggression um, could affect me for the rest of my life. And I'm not going to allow that to happen. And I'm going to find my voice. And we teach them what to say, how to say it in their own language and words, using these skills around emotional regulation but um, and confrontation. And we think it's related to also um, preventing harassment, you know, around issues around power and gender and other uh, arenas mm -hmm. as well. But, you know, how do you find your voice is the what? question. What's, what's the hardest thing that people have to overcome to be able to become more competent, let's, let's say, uh, yeah. or skilled in being able to, to read, recast, and resolve? What, what's, what's the biggest hurdle that most people face? Um, being, being vulnerable. Um, and so in the sense that if, I am, if this is going to push me to be more vulnerable when I was harmed, when I was vulnerable before, mm -hmm how would this help me? And so that's one thing. So for, for many white folks, we get a lot of folks afraid that um, I'm gonna be thought of as racist, let's just say. Um, but that means in many respects, I have to protect myself and armor myself instead of what we're asking for is to, to, to disarm and to, to notice the vulnerability, to notice the pain, notice the feelings. And um, in that sense, um, how do I build a sense of courage to face that? I can use that courage to actually address somebody's stereotype of me as um, incompetent. I have to demonstrate competence. I can negotiate when I see a student in my classroom being harassed in that racialized way. I can speak to that moment. I can share my own feelings about it, but I can also make it a pedagogical uh, experience, right? Those are those are seemingly the goals of teaching, but emotionally, it's like you know climbing a mountain. Um, with practice, we can help people do that, mm -hmm. and um, then that's why I came into teaching. That's why I became a police officer. I didn't come to be the villain of this narrative. And and the funny thing is, I had mm -hmm. to find out that it started with me telling my own story about my childhood around race. For me to even get there. Mm. Wow, I, I I would so I'm imagining a world in which people are are, are gaining access to to this uh, set of uh, you know <clears throat> tools to help them grow. What, what's going to be? What, what's your hope? Is we only have a couple minutes left here? What what do you see yeah. happening with with this? You know, apparent you know reckoning a new awakening about these issues in our society today. Uh, what what? Not so much what do you hope to see, because that I can right. pretty well guess, but what do you sure. think you will see over the next few years? Yeah, instead of world humanization to contrast world domination, that's uh -huh. a little bit far-fetched, of course. But actually, I, I think we, we're trying to say, um, my job, we use a proverb that's been useful since I came to Penn. It helped me navigate the politics of Penn racially. Mm. It's called the, the lion story. The lion story will never be known as long as the hunter is the one to tell it. And so my job and the job of my people who we work for a nonprofit called The Line Story, as well as the Racial Empowerment Collaborative, is my job is to help you fall in love with your own story. Hmm. And my idea is that if people do that, even young people, which means you've got to capture the flaws and the racial flaws of those moments, the humiliation, but also the courage you can use, um, then you're not as vulnerable to other people 
narrating your story for you. You will mm-hmm. see it when it happens. You will say, that's not my story. You will find the words and mm-hmm. with practice, you know, Allah Iverson, Alan Iverson, that there's a way in which practice is going to make you better at speaking up when you see injustice. And then injustice against you, but also somebody you care about, somebody you don't even know, but you know it's not right. You need practice to find that voice. And but it starts with you gotta fall in love with your own narrative, in my and, view. And even your own your own impulses to act in an unjust way or to think evil of other people for you know, because of their skin color or any other you know personal attribute. That awareness Absolutely. is essential. Absolutely. But even let's say that and also let's say you engage in injustice and someone calls you out on it. Can you hear it? Can you listen? That's courageous, too. We don't always do it right. Well, that's that's a journey that I'm I'm uh, I've been on for some time and I feel like I'm just beginning at 68 years old. Uh, Dr. Howard Stevenson, this has been such a. Uh, an eye-opening and, and uh, restorative conversation. I really appreciate your taking the time for joining uh, us on the show today. Uh, what's the best place for people to, to learn more about what we've been talking about here and the, the great work that you're doing? So you could go to www.recastingrace.com and or uh, thelionstory.org um, with two S's in the middle. And uh, you'll find out a lot more about our institutes and our training um, and some of the writings. So, yeah. Thank you. Dr. Howard Stevenson, really appreciate your time today. Thanks so much. Same here. Thank you. All right. And thank you for listening. Uh, The show will be uh, live at 5 p.m. That's when you're listening. I hope you'll enjoy you'll enjoy next week's show at the same time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Thursdays. If you have a question about something you heard on the show, you want to comment to me about it, just write to me. I'm Friedman at Wharton.upenn.edu, and our station is Business Radio at SiriusXM.com. I am Stu Friedman. You've been listening to Work and Life on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, SiriusXM 132. 